Hiya, it's Jake Humphrey. You're listening to High Performance. Thanks for coming back for more. And I'm glad you have because this is what's in store for you. You know, who else at 14 can actually say, I had these dreams, they were going to take forever, they were the fluffy cloud up there. It might have taken 20 years for one of them, you know, and however many for the other one, but I did it. So actually, everything before that period of time was probably that little bit of grounding, fight for it. If you want it, don't give up. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. And look, you can't do a job like this alone, thankfully. Damien Hughes, professor and expert in the field of high-performing teams and cultures, is alongside me once again. Um, Yet today, Professor... Uh, We're not talking about someone who excelled necessarily in a team. We're talking about someone whose probably biggest moment in their life came as individual glory. This person is fascinating. Uh, When I told my mum who we were meeting today, this was the most excited she's been of all our guests because she really admires this person for both her strength and resilience, but also for her humility and just her quiet dignity. So I'm really looking forward to... uh, exploring a little bit more let's do it then let's dive into a conversation about living a high (laughs) performance life with someone who suddenly is blushing um (laughs) she conquered the world from the british military to the british olympic team today's guest though didn't stop at double olympic glory she went on to form foundations to take part in tv shows to write books to become a dame to return to the military roots and so much more so what has she learned along the way and even if you can't run fast how can her high performance life inspire you Welcome to the podcast, Dame Kelly Holmes. Thank you. Nice to oh, see you. That intro. <laughs> there you go. Where do we go from there? <laughs> That's it, done. Well, it's go Colonel on, Dame, isn't it? Colonel now, Colonel, yes. Yeah. Wow. Colonel with the Royal Armoured Corps, which is really nice because it you realise how... So I was in the military for 10 years and then I continued my athletics career and then obviously been out for a while, but you realise I look back now and realise the values that I had from the army still instilled through my other role. So, you know, about courage and discipline and respect and selfless commitment, all of those things are very much what I probably adhere to with everything I do. So it's quite nice. Why did you feel the need to join the army at 18? What was the thinking behind that? Um, Well, I was not academic at all at school, at all. And so... You know, being in a classroom, getting exams, that didn't happen. Uh, and what happened was, is I had a careers officers came 
basically and they showed us like the army navy and the air force and i wasn't inspired by the air force because of you know it showed the administration side i couldn't swim when i was 14 so ships at sea was not going to happen and then i saw these soldiers and they were just all they were doing is screaming and shouting at all the other soldiers literally going underneath the scramble net and over the 12 foot wall and i was like oh my god and it felt like a sense of if i could get into the army i proved i could be someone and if i could get into the army it'd be about discipline and hard work and I felt like I needed that structure almost when I was a young person so yeah so I tried to get in and I got in when I was 17 and 10 months old. So was that structure something that you'd been lacking because your mum had you at a very young age and then you were in foster care at certain times during your childhood yeah Yeah, sorry in in the care homes Mm. was it the structure that appealed to you then or was it something other than that? Yeah, I think it was definitely structure. I just, I think I liked the intensity of what the army could bring because it had the sporting element, but I didn't join for the sport. I did join to meet people, to be able to potentially travel, to actually have a career. Because I never know, I never heard the word university when I was a kid. I didn't have no idea about what I would do. And um, so my early, early days, actually, I... You know, I got I did my work experience at a local leisure centre. Then I did some work over at a local army barracks, and then I was a nursing assistant, which was completely random. But it was about helping people. And then I kind of just felt like that pull of army life would teach me about life and teach me to grow up quickly and to do something that nobody else had done in my area you know all my friends stayed local you know still doing the jobs that they were doing when they left school I didn't want to stay local because I thought well, what is there for me it was in me to do and try something that no one else was doing to prove I could be good I think it was more mindset for that but your mum fascinated me so when mm. I was reading up about your background and I think I said in the introduction that my mum uh, as a real soft spot for you in terms of because I think she saw the vulnerability of you but that courage to keep persevering mm. but that's very much the description that when I read about your mum she was a she was somebody that had endured some quite difficult times but mm. was that constant for you and I was interested in terms of what traits did you feel you inherited from her yeah I used to sort of look and try and see you know I used to say to you you and my mother I can't think because we we're like so different in one way you know <laughs> I was so sporty driven you know I didn't want to sit down she was just like oh my god <laughs> relax love um but I think I took from her so she had me when she was 17 um you know in the 70s when it's very taboo to be with a mixed race guy who she'd had me with I didn't know I didn't know him and um when we went back to Kent she uh was told by her dad my granddad that she couldn't look after me until she could look after herself because she was you know 17 having yeah. a kid bringing about whiter than white kent and uh so i then got put in the care home but before that we were in mum and baby units you know she'd have her own flat and then when uh the adoption services came literally to take me away that day with a family she had to sign the papers but she refused to sign the papers you know i'm going to make sure i get her back so what i had i know is that fight you know that kind of no if i want to do something i'm going to do it and that i know that i've kind of picked up with her is that kind of resilience to when you get against all odds you can give up Mm. or you can go i'm not going to give up so I feel, you know, I'm really pleased that I've had that part of her in there. Anything to do with sport or anything else? <laughs> there was nothing. <laughs> right. There was nothing. Um, but yeah, so we had a, you know, very 
on and off relationship because when you're a teenager, you know, I grew up with my stepdad, Mick, since I was five. And then she sort of left him at 17, so I more got close to her, him rather than her. And then I went into the army and we didn't speak. And then you start getting back because she's your mum. And I didn't know any other blood-related people until I met my sister and brother when I was 16 in a supermarket. But hey, that's another story. Wow, um, what a story. That's another story. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it's just those little, I suppose, elements of your background. So I think the key for me is I didn't feel I had a really good identity when I was younger. So I was in school, in both my primary school and my secondary school, the only mixed race person. I didn't have any sense of how I could connect educationally. I think if they'd actually looked into it like they do now, I probably was dyslexic. You know, I couldn't read properly. I didn't write properly, all of those things. So I just had to go through life fighting to be good. And then of course sport, which we'll talk about, became my driver, my identity. But back then, you know, I, I think I learned quite early on and I don't know why. When you're different, it doesn't mean you should then have that attitude that that's a negative. I always thought, I'm different, so I'm unique. I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to stand out. So I had a different, in my head, you know, when you're in the middle of a group of white kids and you're the only brown person and and bony M brown girl in the ring comes on, you can take that two ways, right? When you're stuffed in the middle, you can either take it like, ah, they're picking on you, or you can go, yeah, tra-la-la-la, you know, and I was like, (laughs) so I was like, yeah, I'm the sugar and the plum, 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 you know, and I had that attitude really young and I'm really pleased that I did because I don't know How useful has that been in the life that you've lived? Always. Yeah. yeah, you know, to have an identity that actually, if you're different, it doesn't matter. There is research on this that's been done with sort of high performance, especially in the field of Olympians and sport, that that from trauma creates mm-hmm. triumph. You know, mm-hmm. like those difficult experiences give you some of the the characteristics to then go on and perform at an elite level. How, how much would you identify with that, Kelly? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I suppose... I suppose maybe sports people have it embedded in people say is it nature or nurture I mean probably an element of both but I think somewhere you have to have it instilled with you to have that inner determination that fight you know and that kind of like I'm gonna go for it. Was there ever a moment where you decided you were going to take the fight option as opposed to being perceived as a victim? Just as a child you know I just think that I you know it's quite hard to comprehend because when you're a young person how do you have those skills sets to do that but I just felt like all I knew back then was everybody that I see as we do in the room now everyone was white in front of me so I never thought anything because I can't see myself so I just thought I was the same as everybody else you know there's only other people identifying that you're different but skin colour doesn't mean that inside you how you're born how you're brought up how you're educated what you're told what you're taught is different to that next person I wasn't brought up in a Jamaican Mm. family or in a black environment I don't know it I have no connection but it's hard to articulate that to people that don't understand it whereas in my youth it was just like they're all my mates you know we were just friends so I think I was lucky that I didn't have that kind of you know hard-hitting bullying or anything when I was younger so I think then I took that into secondary school where I just felt useless all the time I was outside the classroom. I felt like I'm just a failure. No one give a shit because I was just like, you know, just the girl with no name. Until 
athletics tickets hold, you know, and then suddenly I'm winning everything. You know, my PE's teacher's saying, like, if you're going to be good, if you want to be good, you've got to start focusing and believing you can be good because you're better than all of these at this. You might be outside the classroom and you know, you've got to sort that out, but you're better than everybody here. And I was just like, oh, my God, somebody's actually told me I can be good. So was sport the first time in your life that you experienced success? Yeah. In terms of the feeling. Within six months of starting running, I was all England school champion when I was 13. But then I won the mini youth Olympic Games when I was 17. So I actually won a gold medal in the 800 metres when I was 17 years old. See, that is absolutely vital, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. you've gone through between 13, 14, 15 years of being told you're different, Mm -hmm. being the only mixed race person in a white environment, Mm -hmm. being chucked out of classrooms, Mm -hmm. going into children's homes, wondering what your family history is, wondering whether you'll ever have a relationship with your family. Mm. And then suddenly, sport is the first moment where you go, wow, that is what it feels like, A, to be successful, but also to be celebrated by other people. Yeah. So when you look at it like that, no wonder that then determined your life. Because Mm -hmm. suddenly you related sport to feeling like like you've never felt before. Absolutely. I mean, when I won that first English schools championships, 1,500 metres, I came back and there was all this bunting outside the house, you know, the old-fashioned bunting. With a, I've got a picture of it somewhere, you know, like a, a piece of white paper with a handwritten welcome home, yeah, Kelly yeah. type thing. And there's me and my stepdad <laughs> outside with a big afro. And then people are just like, you wow. know, you, those little things, just like, wow. And then sport literally took up my life because we didn't have a bus to go to school, so I used to cycle to school do whatever at school, cycle to training, do training, come back. That was my life as a teen. I didn't go out partying, didn't go out with mates. I went around the house maybe a couple of times. I loved it. So where did that mindset then come from? I loved winning. Watching the Olympic Games when I was 14, I watched Sebastian Coe within 1,500 metres. Was I this didn't... the 84 or 80, Yeah, 84. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm that old. 84. <laughs> <laughs> 84. Olympic Games, Sebastian Coe won the 1500 metres. I was already 1500 metre running by them. I literally got goosebumps inside me, like in my core. And I went back to school and I told my best friends, Kerry, Lara and Kim, I am going to be Olympic champion. And they said, yes, you probably are, because that's the only thing you're bloody good at. (laughs) (laughs) Which was true. (laughs) Um, But it was just that moment of... Wow, I love the whole thing about the Olympics, you know, kind of the Olympic rings, what it meant, you know, the history of it, seeing success, people on a rostrum, national anthem playing, British flag flying, like med around the neck. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I just felt it. It was just something like literally went through my body. And I knew that day that's what I wanted to be. But you used a lovely phrase before, or quite a moving phrase, mm. sorry, not a lovely one where you said about, I was the girl with no name. Mm. And how much of it was just having someone know your name that was the appeal of that yeah all of it just having like that you're here you know I always believe that one person can change somebody's life mum was my PE teacher you know we're still friends to this day to my PE teacher because it was her that actually said to me Kelly you can be good just having an identity is so important you know for anybody knowing where they're going to go what they're going to do what they want to do finding passion I feel lucky that I had the upbringing I had lucky that I had those feelings inside me at a very young age you know because two dreams were to be in the army as a physical train instructor and to be Olympic champion and I've done both 
you know, who else at 14 can actually say, I had these dreams, they were going to take forever, they were the fluffy cloud up there. It might have taken 20 years for one of them, you know, and however many for the other one, but I did it. So actually, everything before that period of time was probably that little bit of grounding, fight for it. If you want it, don't give up. When you're an adult, you start thinking about all the little incidences that have happened along the way where you could have just given up, you could have cried, you could have said, I'm not good enough yourself, you could have listened to what people said. But I believe that that, to become the Olympic champion that I did was some of the traits from being young, thinking, no, I'm going to do this, you you think I can't, I'm going to. But that was in sport. That's the only thing I knew I could do it in. I couldn't do it in anything else. I remember reading that you produced your training diary on the 1st of January 2004 and there was a really moving passage where you wrote about I've sacrificed so much to Mm. get to this and I just want a year where I can get through it without injury and setback to be able to go and achieve my destiny was the phrase you used. How much did you ever go to the trouble of reflecting backwards and and, and writing down all those obstacles you'd overcome to give you that sense of confidence? As an athlete I wrote my diaries every single year still have my ones from when I was 13 so I wrote diaries you were doing that at 13 as well though yeah just writing well just notes about main training like how I felt or where did that come from then because that's very smart to do that when you when you talk about the fact that really everything was a bit of a struggle apart from the Mm. sport so how did you suddenly apply such a kind of smart scientific approach I loved it. I loved it. You know, literally, it was my life <laughs> back then. So everything I wanted to be Olympic champion. You can't just turn up and be an Olympic champion. But who told you that though? That you can't just turn up and be Olympic champion? Because I I knew that to to be able to get into Olympic games, you'd have to break two minutes. You know, I was running two fifty something as a kid. You know, it's like this isn't. Yeah, yeah. So I knew it was a long term piece. But I suppose within so that diary you referred to with the two thousand and four. When I wrote that passage in the diary, which I then put in my autobiography, it was really about everything that I felt. Like, I just kept thinking I was cursed at this time. I think everything was knocking me back. So basically, in 2003, for the listeners who don't know, during my career, I was already 12 years as an international athlete. I'd left the army uh, when I was 27. I'd been in there for 10 years. Um, I had just a massive breakdown, like, literally to the point that I didn't want to be here anymore. And... I was in a training camp getting ready for world championships. I'd already been injured for many years, but won lots of medals, you know. I was having highs and lows for all these years, fighting back. No one knew the story behind half of my medals. I'd be on a track and get a silver or a bronze, and people were like, oh, well, she looks silver or bronze. And it wasn't, you know, wasn't champion. And just like, you have no idea. I shouldn't have even been at this track. You know, there's all those things that was happening. This period of time, I was getting ready for world champs. Uh, we were in a camp, and I went into the bathroom and basically broke down crying inside screaming inside you know when you see somebody in pain you see their heart breaking but you can't shout it out because people are outside saw some scissors starting to cut myself became a self-harmer that day didn't know anything about self-harming didn't know about depression didn't know about breakdown did not want to be there I mean how I didn't do something else was because I still had a dream I try to articulate it on stage when half of you is actually dying inside and half of you wants to be successful and driven as that's the hardest Mm. fight it's not necessarily the fight of what you're doing because at that time it's red mist black dog black hole tunnel whatever but i had such something inside me 
I always believed I'd be Olympic champion. I don't know what it was. Even through the depths of despair, even through the injuries I had, ruptured calves, torn calves, you know, stress patches, glandular fever, all in my international career, I always woke up thinking I'm going to be Olympic champion. And I don't know why that was. I always believe in fate. I mean, you know, right. there's a big thing in fate. I believe that I went through the journey, could have given up, didn't. Then I get two gold medals, you know, so yeah, yeah. payback. There's your reward. <laughs> you know, but yeah, there's little things which make you as a high performer, because also different, I think something different in an individual sport has to be some resolve inside you that can go through a pain barrier and that's whether that's physical or emotional that kind of can push to that next limit push to see how far you can get push to know where you can take yourself and I think I just kept pushing those little milestones and obviously uh, the breakdown was because I'd never really reflected on everything before it's a different era back then you know you didn't talk about mental health when you went on a physio bed they're treating the injury did you feel it coming the breakdown do you did you sense it was on its way no because I just coped with the highs and lows for yeah. so long you know it was almost like I was going through the same old routine you know I'd get injured fight through it get back get a medal get injured fight through it it was just like normal it was becoming like oh, for fuck's sakes you know give me a, give me a break <laughs> and when, <laughs> I mean? you, when you talk about going through a breakdown yeah. for people that haven't suffered with mental health problems mm. Is it you wake up in the morning and something happens and that's it, the, the breakdown has happened? Is it an instantaneous moment? I think so. The, I think the actual breakdown part is... Do you remember you, where you were unexpected. when it happened? Yeah, I was in France. I was in uh, our apartment and I went into the, the toilet because I had another little niggle and I just literally exploded. I mean, I can't explain any more. Lit in the mirror and everything inside me was just like this explosion of hatred emotion disappointment I felt like somebody was literally wanting me to fail like literally saying you're not going to do this and I just couldn't cope but I think then that's the point is you can have uh, you can have a bad day you can have stress you can have anxiety you can have depression we can have all of those emotions we can just have a bad day but the moment you have a breakdown, that's a different thing. I think there's a chemical imbalance that's just gone and broken, you know, and I was broken. But in hindsight, is there anything that you think you could, any steps you could have taken, mm. you know, before you reach that moment of breakdown? Maybe in sport, people recognising that emotional roller coaster. Because when you give your life to sport, there's no guarantees, is there? You know, I had a, remember I had a secured job, I had a pay packet each month I had status in the army yeah. I was a sergeant by then I knew my roles my expectations I was comfortable with that when I left I was putting all my eggs let's say in one basket to become Olympic champion so what happens then is that every time you're doing something you don't want negative around you you don't want somebody saying you can't achieve because I'm yeah. thinking I've got to get to the next games you know you have Commonwealth Games European champs or world champs and Olympics in that four-year cycle so every year to prove that you're one of the best in the world you've got to be at that championships and you've got to win a medal you know so you can't just go oh, I'm not going to go this year it's like no there's no no mm. there's no not you know and and being paid as an athlete, you only ever get paid if you get a sponsor or if you compete. I was injured so many times on the circuit. I didn't get paid to run because I was injured so much. So I'm putting everything in. The medal was never about money for me, never about fame, never about anything. It was about purely 
proving to myself I can be good from back in the day. Yep. I didn't really care about the money at that stage, but you are putting your life into a dream. So did you mention your breakdown to anyone in British athletics? So in 2000, no, 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 I didn't mention anyone. I didn't know how to. Uh, how, do you, how do you explain that you've just gone through something you don't know you've had? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We talk often on this podcast Mm. about fault versus responsibility. Mm. You are the epitome of fault versus responsibility because it wasn't your fault that you went into care homes it wasn't your fault you didn't know your family it wasn't your fault that you weren't right at school and you suffered with dyslexia it wasn't your fault that you had a nervous breakdown but through every single step of the way you had to take on the responsibility and I think it's such a strong message for people listening to this that you can't live a life of blame and live a life of looking at fault live a life of being a victim Mm. you have no matter how bad it gets and you know you're talking about you know contemplating the ultimate act and self-harming no matter how bad it gets trying to find a mindset of responsibility is so important it really is and I think if people listening get to those stages I've always had this thing around how do you turn a negative into a positive because I think there's always positives into anything that we do so even at the brink of having a breakdown if in one side of me saying but you know I haven't given up on my athletics yet I'm still this is why I've got to that point my dream is still to come I was able to change that mindset through one bit even though I'm emotionally still suffering because you're a human being as a sports person, having that ability to snap into where's those positives. And I think when I was at the depths of despair, I kept thinking, this is because I want it so much. You know, I could give up. I could give up tomorrow. Why am I going through this? I want this so badly. Only I can do that now. So I can pick myself up. And I used to think to myself, especially back then, I looked back and go, so I've won up until that point. I'd won nine major medals, right? And six years of those had been in, had in, having injuries, yet I still come back with medals. I then go at the 
the lowest of the low. I'm getting ready for world championships and I win a silver medal at that world championships. And I stood and watched them with that round my neck. No one knew what was going on. No one knew what was happening each night, what I was going through. And that you take as a strength of character. So I think some people have to remember they've always had happiness somewhere in their life. They've always had things they know they can do. They've always had experiences that have been great and good so when you're at that depth of despair there's a reason why you've got to that point you know there's always a reason why we have a breakdown there's always a reason why we go to people go to drugs alcohol self-harming in the way I did cutting there's a reason for it so I knew at that time my reason was I was hard on myself because I wanted to be good that's throughout my whole life hard on myself because I believed that Olympic dream was going to come and I didn't refuse to give up on it. You're the only person, no one else around you, the only person with lives with that, yeah. if only I did. So when you say about this kind of responsibility stuff and you mentioned about did anyone help you? In 2004, at the beginning, in January, I set up a mentoring programme called um, On Camp with Kelly. Yeah. And what this programme was, was to help junior athletes learn what it takes to become world class. But everything, not just the running around a track, because if you're running around a track, you're on my programme if you're good enough anyway. It was, can you go through hard times? Can you go for people putting you down? Can you go through the pressures of education with your mates going out partying and you've got the talent they haven't, but they're coercing you to go off to there? And I was like, I'm going to tell you, teach you everything it's taken me to get to where I've got. This is before I won my two gold medals. So I selected eight girls, was going to take them to South Africa in the October. Can you imagine? They're going with an international athlete, uh, middle distance runner to South Africa then I won, won two gold medals and I came back and everyone said to me there's no way you're going to take those eight girls you know I had all these jobs open to me I could have done everything and I went do you know what my biggest value of everything I've learned is to take these girls to South Africa now I've gone through highs lows success and I took them to South Africa for a month 15, 16, 17 year olds had two sort of helpers and in the end that programme developed 65 international athletes and these girls all stuck to their sports, they transitioned because it was about what does it take to achieve in your life what you want to achieve? It takes everything. It takes hard times. It takes tears. It takes resilience, hard work, commitment, dedication, people putting you down. It takes all of those, doesn't it? To be good. Yeah. You know, so no one goes question, through it though, easy. Kelly, so it so if I was one of those young girls uh, um, mm. turning up on this camp, mm. what would you give me as a proportionality of how much of your your success was down to pure talent, your ability to run fast and things like that, and how much of it was down to all the other stuff, the ability to cope with those issues well, that you've just told me? 20% of talent, because there's so many talented people, and then 80% of going through everything else to get there. Wow, okay. You know, if I go on a track at Olympic Games... You know, 0.05 of a second separated the first four of us in that 800 metres. We're yeah. all bloody good runners. Yeah, yeah. What take? You know, had I given up, I wouldn't have been part of that four. You know, so actually, there's that inner bit, the belief and your ability to push and to trust yourself. There's so many times I probably say in my whole career, only four times out of 12 years did I have that totally in the zone where I felt like I'm floating. You know, two of those were at the Olympics, and one was in breaking the British record in 97, 1500 meters, and one was in Sydney when I was told there's no way I'm going to get there. I'd got a 12 centimeter tear in my calf in the January. I was told by everyone that like, you're 30, you're not going to get there. 
you know, you might as well just carry on, wait for the next kind of season to come. And I'd already gone to the first Olympics when I was serving in the British Army and I ended up getting a stress fracture. I still ran. I got into the heat semi-final. I came fourth. I got pipped on the line by a tenth of a second, running with a stress fracture, right? Had injections into the bone site to numb it. I was emotionally in pain, physically in pain. I said to myself, I'm not going to my next Olympics without coming back with a medal. Told her I wasn't going to get there. Had six weeks of running only that year. Everything else was in a pool, a stepper, cross trainer, bike, everything, weights, training. My head was like, I'm going to do this. I got there and I got bronze medal. It's fascinating hearing you describe that Sydney Games because I remember that. But those two events where you won the gold in, in, uh, in Athens, like, the way I remember it is there was a real sense of calmness about you during the yeah. race because I remember you like tactically you let others go off and you just sat and you held your ground mm. and then you came and, 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 and had a strong finish. Mm. When did you learn that emotional control that was obviously lacking in Sydney to panic at that moment to then four years later come and... Yeah. be so serene I had a totally different mindset going into 2004 because what had happened to me 2003 like totally I just knew that the only thing that was letting me down was my body and health so you know because I'd learned from even all these other things so I'd said to instead of telling people around me the emotional side of what was happening I said my physio I need you to be the best physio you can be. I want to be the best in the world. You're already a good physio, but you need to be great. Like Almost like it was selfish. I said, you need to live my life. You know, I need to be stalking you. That's literally what I did. A training partner who was a guy who gave up his athletics career that year, Anthony Whiteman, who was a 1,500-metre runner for Great Britain. He was lacking in motivation, kind of wanted a bit of a kick up the arse. And I said, like, would you come and train with me? And then prior to um, Athens, we were in holding camp in Cyprus. And um, because he was a man, it was faster. I could just run. I knew the times. And he did. And quickly, the story goes on that after Athens, he then broke the world record for the men's over 40s, uh, 1500 metres and become world record holder for the Mars. You know, so you so raised the bar for him raised as the well. Raised the bar for him. So what I did in 2004, I didn't feel at that time I could get any lower than I'd been. And because I was still there, that made me even more thinking, I can, I can do this, you know, because I can't go any lower. Yet I'm still achieving, you know. So I changed my mindset. Hence why I wrote that bit in my book. And then so what happened was, I decided that I need my legs to do the talking because when you go in sport and you recognise you end up getting, especially in your own sport, people want to know how's it going, papers are all after you, it comes to Olympic year, they try to put people up on a pedestal yeah. and I just thought, I don't want that. Do you know what? The only thing that's going to actually make me feel good is me being good. So I ended up not doing any media that year until right before the Olympic Games. Paula Radcliffe was put on the pedestal. You know, everyone was going to, she was going to be our golden girl, which actually helped everybody else because no one else, <laughs> no one was interested in us, you know what I mean? So then what happened was, is the change around was that I had a different attitude to high performance. Like I knew I could do this. You know, when you've won that many medals with that many setbacks, it's like, for me, fate and staying injury free. So anyway, what happened was, is I went to world championships, fell in the indoors. And I thought, oh, you know, like banging down the thing. And I thought, that's all right. It's just a blip. And I changed my attitude to feeling like everything's against me, to feeling, pick yourself back up. You're not injured. You took responsibility. You took responsibility. I took responsibility of my team. I said, this is what I expect from you. 
this is what I know I want to do and what I can do. And then we got to holding camp. Training was like literally going off the roof. But I'd lost every single 1500 meter run that year and I'd won every single 800. And that was a psychological thing. I was wanting 1500 meters so bad, I run pants. 800, I didn't think I was going to take part. It's like running how I should. And that's how your brain, you know, if you're good at anything, one minute we can do it, the next minute it's like, we feel like we're useless at something because we haven't clicked that brain in the switch up. So anyway, I get to the Olympic Games. Training had gone brilliant. Hadn't been injured for the rest of the year. I was eating better, sleeping better, happy, relaxed. And I could run. And then when we got to the 800 metres, because I only decided that I was going to do both like two days before I went into Athens because I thought, well, what have I got to lose? If I'll come back with two medals of any colour or a great end to a season I had a completely different approach it wasn't all I've got to I've got to I've got to I almost took that off of me a bit the pressure and said run how you run that's a question that I wanted to ask you when you were talking about that being in that bathroom in uh, in France do you feel you could have achieved more if you'd have started to be be kinder to yourself Mm. much earlier yeah, I mean, I could have won those Olympics in my first Olympic Games when I come forth with a stretcher. I could have won in Sydney, yeah. but I was always under pressure almost because of like the injuries and then putting myself through that, got to get back, got to get back. I never reflected. You know, you don't reflect. When you're on a physio bed, it's all about get that injury sorted, get that injury sorted. No one really sort of took you on, on board and said, okay, so you're going through an injury. This is going to impact your anxiety. This is going to impact the stress that you're Mm. feeling you're going to be worried you're going to this you're going to be that it's not just about the injury never had those conversations you also that was an era though where it was all about be brilliant push yourself Mm -hmm. be the best don't be weak Mm. no one in that era was kind to themselves no that was seen as a weakness i think in that era wasn't it and i think now we're much more open to Mm. if you're good to yourself mentally Mm. you that's not a weakness anymore well, in 2003, no one talked about it. When I wrote my autobiography, nobody was talking about it. In 2005, I hadn't even told my mum, friends, family. No one even knew about what was going on in my life up until I wrote my book the year after I retired. Not one person. Your phone goes off the hook anyone. then when the book comes out, I imagine. Then it goes mental. But then, yeah. you know, how many people remember me on the front pages of the national newspaper saying I'd sell time? Hardly anyone. Because it was just like fish and chip paper. She said something, Let's, you know, next day it's gone. And it was only sort of 2017 when I was on a TV show that we're talking about it again and everyone's going, oh my God, really? And I said, yeah, I've been talking about it since 2005. You're now listening. That's and the sport change. has now changed. That's the change. Sport has also changed at a high level. Instead of just having a sports psychology focus where it's about, can I get to that track without feeling nervous, sick, yeah. you know, can't get there properly and I need somebody to guide me through it. They now know that they need to talk beforehand about the process of how you're going to get through that journey. Where do you draw the line in terms of, you share a lot of this around your mental health and I think it, mm. that it, it's a real testament to you because there's a real vulnerability in what you're sharing, but I think it's mm. really helpful. But then I've been interested that you draw the line at some things where you just won't discuss it and that's mm. not for debate. Mm. And I'm just interested in terms of wh- where you choose to draw the line in mm. terms of what you share versus what you keep private and what advice would you give to some of those young athletes that that were listening? 
Yeah, well, for anybody really. I mean, we live our own lives and it's only us that we are living our life for essentially. You know, we might have family and friends and people around us, but essentially it's our life, right? We've all got this inner ability to want to be good at something or to drive. And I feel like when I share anything to do with the journey of athletics and the emotion and the breakdown and that... That's a human trait that lots of people will come across barriers and setbacks. Like when I talked about bereavement with my mum, no one talks about these things, but why? You're not happy just because they're now, you know, had the funeral. It's still freaking in you. Like I breathed for 18 months, I was in a right state. I believe that there's things that will help people by me sharing those things. There's other things that I've chosen that most people know me because I won two gold medals, right? They don't know me for any other reason, really, apart from what now they're getting to know. But essentially, most people know me because I won two gold medals. So I believe, how do I inspire people, not just athletes, anybody, to get the best out of themselves, to be the best version of themselves, to work hard, to be motivated, to take responsibility, to look at yourself, be respectful, be respectful, have values. If I can pass those, that's going to help a lot of other people with their mindset on expectation that they should get something back for it or actually should be given to you easy or it's an easy road to get to success no it's freaking not so I shared my life and my journey and what happened to me during those heights of my season because most people have no idea that I went through that yet I then go even if you've had the worst time of your life ups downs barriers whatever they perceive to be in your life and remember never never ever um compare yourself to someone else's life you know because what I've had happen to me might not ever be as bad as somebody else but I'm not living their life I'm living mine so what I've ha- had happen to me is was hell for me and I always believe if I can articulate that in a way that's motivating that people can, can look at their life and go okay this might be happening or happen but I can actually do something else with it or I can take the uh, positives out of the negatives see other people still being successful even though they've had bad time that has to be something that motivates others so I've chosen that is the line that I go all about me and my drive and the emotional side of it that I think will impact a larger people in society I love the clarity of where you choose to draw the line though I think it's really powerful in this day and age that there's some things you'll discuss and some you won't and you defend that and people, yeah, and people have a, a a decision to do it when they want. And you know, as I've got older, I never used to speak about anything close to me, like nothing ever. I was a closed book, like literally, I've always been a closed book. And now I'm a bit more me. I show my personality more on TV. I look how I want to look now. I don't conform. I know, you know, you come back from the Olympic Games. And everyone's going to these events, you know, everyone's got, women got long hair, they're all in their dresses. And I still wear dresses if I want to dress up or whatever. But I felt like I didn't really, again, know my identity. My mum passed away. The day she passed away, I had this hair shaved off, my undercut, because I'd been speaking about it for ages. And I thought, shall I, shan't I? What will people think? What will people say? What will people think I look like? And I thought, I don't care. Because actually, I've still got my values. I'm still respectful. I still am me as a person. But I want to be who I actually want to be. So I'll show it in this way. But I don't have to then speak about every single part of my life. There's a book by a man called Bob Iger, mm-hmm. CEO of Disney. And in it, he talks about the fact that being completely you, 100% honest in everything you say and everything you do, mm-hmm. not putting on a front in any respect, is almost like a superpower. Mm-hmm. And once you're brave enough to go this is me if you don't like it fine 
but this is me and that's all I can be. It's a really liberating place to get to, I think. And yeah. I'm so pleased that you feel that you're there. And Well, I feel that I'm there. You know, there's still things great. that I wouldn't choose to discuss, but that's just because you just, why, why, why? You know, at what point? Yeah, exactly. You know, you, go, you might get to a part in your life at a certain situation. It's like when I started to speak about this, it was a point in my life it was right. Yeah. Other things that I've come through, I've there's a point in my life that it's right. The bereavement, I had to go through that to now talk about bereavement. I didn't when my granddads and my nans died because it didn't have that same thing. There'd be a point in my life somewhere else that something else will come out because I think it's right. But at the moment, you don't have to shout. Anyone can do what they want in life. If you want to shout about something, shout. If you don't, don't. And finally, having waited so long, did it feel how you hoped it would feel when you crossed the line and won the gold? Oh my gosh, yeah. More than more than that. You know, huge weight came off my... I felt on the 1,500 metres, this tonne weight literally fly up off my shoulders as I was going around literally oh. felt the thing and I sat in the press conference it was just before the four by one men won uh, the gold medal for Great Britain and I said there I can now be me that's literally my words so wow. powerful listen we always finish with some real quick fire questions oh god <laughs> three, I don't like these I can never think <laughs> three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into um, be kind don't judge somebody before you know them and um, be respectful. What advice would you give a teenage Kelly just starting out? Actually, I, if I was writing the book to her, I would tell her that you're going to go through shit, hell, life, but don't give up because you you're still, you know, whatever you go through is going to be the making of you. I always used to say, and this is not football, I used to, I used to think that the Olympic Games was my destiny. I do not believe that now. I believe it's my journey. My destiny is to talk authentically to people about that period and all the things I've gone through to help somebody else. How important is legacy? Legacy is important when it's talked about in the right way at the right time. Legacy is only through history and proof and things working, not just because of, you know, something happens. Example 2012, you know, everyone said the legacy. Well, legacy is only now getting proven because somebody might have run there in 2012 or been inspired by 2012, and then you can say there's a legacy. And what's your one golden rule for our listeners that want to live a high performance life? Believe in yourself. That is the perfect way to end. Listen. <laughs> you got more. You got more. No, no. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. For being so honest and sharing a story that I know a lot of people still won't be fully across and mm -hmm. they won't fully understand and then hearing you sit here and talk about it in such an honest way I think it is without doubt going to do exactly what you want which is to help people and when you talk about as an athlete 80% is in your head and 20% is in your body I think that is something that isn't just about athletics that is about life and it's a great message Thank you Damien Jake that was um, far more emotional than I perhaps thought it would be, you know? Yeah, I think that um, for somebody to be that open and make themselves so vulnerable, I think, is really courageous, and that very much came through. The big thing that stands out for me is when, when you said to her, how much was ability and how much was psychology? And I sort of thought she'd go, what, 60% natural ability, 40% in the brain? 20% ability and I, what I love about that is that that is a message that can be applied to any walk of life any person listening to this if you can get the mental side of your life and your approach to life right then the rest will follow I wasn't so surprised at her answer to that because it's a question that I've asked 
when I've worked with high-performing sports teams and I normally say how much of it is down to ability, how much of it is down to attitude, if you like. And the average in high-performance teams is 70-30. 70% of it is down to attitude and mentality and all those other softer skills. Talent gets you to the table for around 30% of it. So I think you're right. There's a really powerful message for anyone listening here that this, you know, talent gets you to the table, but it's other softer qualities that, that that get you into that realm of high performance. Enjoyed it. Oh, I've loved it. Thanks. Wow, that was deep, wasn't it? Really deep with Kelly Holmes. Her honesty was incredible. And if you really got a lot out of that, I'd love it if you would leave a review. You can also subscribe if you don't already. Thanks so much to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio for his hard work. Do keep an eye out across social media for details of the next episode. For now, though, see you later. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.